big balls made Can't you hear me when I call Welcome to episode 1805 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Would you care to guess, if you don't already know the answer, what adjective the athletics Evan Drellick applied to Tuesday's meetings between MLB and the MLBPA? I don't know. I I read his tweets, but candidly, I don't remember what what adjective he used. Let me guess, though. Um, yeah. I'm gonna go with heated. Ding ding ding. Was it really? <laughs> it oh, was man. heated. Yes. <laughs> I swear I didn't look again. You could have pre-written that. I yeah. Mean, I made fun of that last week. <laughs> it's always heated yep. or tense or something along those lines. Yes, contentious. It's it's never convivial or anything. Right. It's, uh, you can kind of bank on heated. So. <laughs> No deal done as we speak here and not a ton of new details to discuss, which brings us to something that we wanted to put to our audience because historically speaking, we would be starting our season preview series like this week. Yeah, (laughs) I think this is roughly when we do it. Traditionally, what we've done, at least for the last few years, is 15 team preview episodes, two teams per episode, and we start with the teams that are projected to be middling, and then we work our way out, so we eventually end up with, I don't know, the Dodgers and the Orioles as our last preview, the best and worst projected team This year, we don't exactly know what to do because we don't know when the season is starting or if the season is starting. We're, what, less than two weeks away now from when spring training is supposed to start. Certainly seems like that's not going to happen on time. And there could be a deal done. I I think, you know, up until, let's say, March 1st, that's a date that I've seen bandied about as kind of a cutoff for, okay, we can actually still make opening day, which is scheduled for March 31st. But we just don't know. We don't know when spring training is going to start, how long it's going to be, when opening day actually will be. And so we're trying to figure out what to do with our team preview pods, which were weird in 2020 because we started them the normal way and we didn't quite finish before COVID hit. And then there was like a four month break and then we came back and finished the team previews. And then I guess last year it was more normal, but this year we have a few options potentially. And one option is that we just start them now or next week and just plow ahead as if the season is going to start when it's scheduled to start. The problem with that, of course, is that a lot of teams are not done or not close to done. I mean, half the free agents are still free agents, basically. So there's a lot of work to do. And if we were to do previews now before the lockout ends, then we wouldn't be able to include all of the signings and transactions that happen after that point. And we wouldn't really be fully previewing the team or the season it would just be a snapshot of where it is today before that flurry of trades and signings so that's one option another option is we could wait as long as possible and just cram them all in (laughs) so usually what we do is two preview pods per week and then one email show or regular show in between the preview pods to give us a bit of a break and a scheduling (laughs) breather as well 
And if we just packed them all in and went nothing but previews, then we could start in late February, I think February 25th, and we could still get them all in before the regularly scheduled opening day. Or we could continue to play it by ear and just see what happens and maybe opening day will be delayed and we'll have more time to do previews. Or another option is we just scrap them for this year or do them in a different form. And I know that some of our listeners... Thoughts and opinions of the preview series vary. Some listeners love it. Some listeners think that they're the worst episodes we do because they (laughs) like when we do weird stuff and not your standard season preview type material, which we try to make fun, but it's still season previews. I think it does help us bring in new listeners because we do have people on who cover those teams and those people promote the pod to their audiences. And there are quite a few people who find us through the season preview series and then eventually get hooked on our brand of weirdness, hopefully, or they go away because this is not at all what they were led to expect. (laughs) (laughs) So... There are pluses and minuses, and, you know, it's not always our favorite thing to do. I mean, we do our best with it, but it can be a bit of a slog with scheduling, especially with all kinds of reporters who are in spring training and juggling where they are and what they have to do and how bad their Wi-Fi is and all of that. So it's nice to know what your topic is, but it can also be a lot of legwork to schedule, not that that's our listeners' problem. So we're just kind of putting it out there. What should we do? And we could do just a compressed preview series as well. We could just do by division or some sort of really quick lightning round preset question, sort of, you know, just narrow it down to the most important stuff and and just speed it up because strange circumstances call for strange preview series. So if you feel like letting us know what you want us to do, maybe we can put a poll up or something, but uh, we're trying to navigate that these days. Yeah, I think my instinct is to to try to do something a bit broader, understanding that we will cover any meaningful free agent signings and trades that unfold after the lockout is done and a new CBA is agreed to. So it's not as if we won't, you know, when Carlos Correa signs, we're going to talk about it, you guys. Like, Mm -hmm. don't worry. We're going to let you know what we think that means for whatever team he ends up signing with. So selfishly, perhaps, my instinct is to do like division previews or something more compressed. I don't want to skip them entirely I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, in moments of weakness, I suppose that not having to do them would be <laughs> nice. But I, I think it's good to to preview the, the season in some way. And I do think that there are people who really like them and look forward to them. So I don't want to completely abandon the project, especially for those folks who, who find them useful as they're gearing up for the year. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I'm also mindful of the fact that, and again, this isn't necessarily our listeners' problems, but like, Ben, have you thought about how much work we're going to have to do between <laughs> the end yeah. of the lockout and when opening day starts? Like, we're just mm-hmm. going to be, um, we're going to be busy people and we're going to have to be bothering also busy people to come chat with us. So, you know, these are the things that we're trying to balance and figure out and we have hope that people will give us their thoughts and also be forgiving as we try to navigate what, you know, as you said, is a very unusual and weird circumstance. Mm-hmm. All right. So we will figure something out there and we don't have to go in projection order if we were to go team by team just because the projections are still sort of up in the air because rosters are. So one idea you floated before we started recording is that we could talk about teams that seem to be set that 
do have most of their business done, presumably, or teams that just don't seem like they'll be very busy after action resumes. That is an option, or we could just get all the boring non-contenders out of the way, (laughs) or we could just focus on questions that don't depend so much on the rest of the roster, just, you know, prospect stuff or things that we know will be part of the story for those teams as opposed to this position battle going into spring training which might be completely different by the time the season actually starts so there are options but yeah write in let us know what you think post in the facebook group the discord group wherever we will see those conversations and thanks for your thoughts nothing hooks new listeners like talking about the pittsburgh pirates (laughs) Yep. all right so a few other things here First of all, I suppose we should acknowledge that the cover model for MLB The Show 2022, as expected, as speculated, as hoped for, is Shohei Otani, which is somewhat historic in that he is the first Asian athlete to grace the cover of a North American sports game from one of the four major North American sports. So that is exciting in men's leagues, at least. And he is uh, the first angel to be on the cover of MLB The Show, which is sort of a sad commentary on the angels vis-a-vis Mike Trout, I suppose. But I am very much here for the era of Otani being on the cover of everything, which it seems like he is now. It's just like he is on the cover of Ron Chandler's Baseball Forecaster. He's on the cover of the Bill James Handbook. Yeah. He is not on the cover of the Baseball Prospectus Annual. I guess our friends at BP thought that Juan Soto was a pretty good baseball player as well, which uh, can't quibble with that. I guess it's good to have one big book that does not have Otani on the cover, but both of the books that do and then also the cover of MLB The Show 22 have the same standard design which is what you would expect. I mean you have your two-way player on the cover. Obviously you're going to have him in both of his guises right? So they all have him as a pitcher and also as a hitter and so I'm looking forward to seeing what modes if any MLB The Show builds in to take advantage of the two-way cover model just because like two-way players has not really been a strength of that franchise. I know that technically there was a way to create two-way players and play as two-way players in MLB The Show 21, but wasn't that well implemented from what I can gather, and it was hard to manage, and it was tough to like have a pitcher who also DH'd in the games that he pitched the way that Otani does. Like It just wasn't fully fledged, so you couldn't quite replicate Otani season, but if you're going to have Otani on your cover, then I imagine you would make it a priority to <laughs> fully support a player like Otani in every mode of your game. So looking forward to seeing what the emphasis on Otani actually does for that video game. But I think it's cool that he is everywhere these days. So this this obviously portrays my ignorance of, of MLB The Show, but like Ichiro was never on the cover of MLB The Show? No, and I guess Ichiro's arrival predated the show. I, I guess uh, the show's predecessors may have been around by that time, but I think 06 was the first one that was actually called the show. Sure. And the predecessors, like the, the MLB series, went back to 97 or so, but no, I, you never had Ichiro. Like the, the cover athletes going back to MLB 98, the predecessor series, Bernie Williams was on the cover of that game, and I mean, a favorite of mine, so I support that. Cal Ripken Jr., Mo Vaughn, 
Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, Barry Bonds, Sean Green, cover boy of MLB 2004, Eric Chavez on MLB 2005, and then Vlad Guerrero Sr., And then since the show started, that branding began. It's been David Ortiz, David Wright, Ryan Howard, Dustin Pedroia, Joe Maurer, Adrian Gonzalez on MLB 12, Andrew McCutcheon, Miguel Cabrera, Yasiel Puig, Josh Donaldson, Ken Griffey Jr., Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Javier Baez, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Shohei Otani. So, yeah, no Ichiro. (sighs) So that's wild to me. That's It is, yeah. That's surprising. I mean, so I guess in fairness, in 2007, so like the first year after they had really gotten their feet under them, why didn't they put A-Rod on the cover? He was the most valuable player in baseball that year. Was it because he was unpopular, Ben? It might have been that. Yeah, he was never on the cover. Man, Curtis Granderson sure had a good 2007. That's not the point of this conversation, but look at that. Good for you, Curtis. They should have put Chase Utley on the cover because it would have been funny because he's... (laughs) you know, cantankerous in a charming sort of way. I guess Ichiro was the 13th most valuable position player in baseball Mm -hmm. in 2007 by Fangraph's War. So I guess just not good enough. David Wright was second. So, you know, Mm -hmm. no slouch, but, uh, and uh, Ardonias. Wow. Anyway, I'm I'm just remembering some really good baseball players now. That's all that I've started to do over <laughs> here is be like, yeah, Alfonso Soriano. What a year you had, huh? <laughs> yeah, it is odd. And and at least according to the Wikipedia page, there were international covers for the franchise and Korean covers and Taiwanese covers, but no Japanese covers, which hmm. I guess explains the lack of Ichiro as well. So yeah, Otani is uh, breaking another barrier here, and I hope they kind of build the game around him a little bit, or at least I'm sure they'll go to great lengths to model Otani in the game and capture all of his greatness and his mannerisms, etc. So looking forward to that. Just generally happy about the takeover of Otani and appearing on all of the baseball media. And this version of the show will be on all the consoles appropriately as well. So last year finally came to Xbox after years of PlayStation exclusivity. And this year will also be on Nintendo Switch. So if you have any kind of console, you can play MLB The Show 22 with our man Shohei Otani on the cover. So that should be fun. I enjoy both that he, as as such a singular talent, is being sort of appropriately given this mantle, and also that he seems to be fine taking it on, right? Like, I, I always worry about fame being, well, like a human rights violation, but burdensome in a less dramatic way of expressing it. And like, you know, uh, like Mike Trout seems thoroughly uninterested in doing a lot of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about that as a problem. I'm doing air quotes ad nauseum, but it's just, it's, it's nice when the player who should be recognized in this way is recognized in this way. And it's nice when that recognition is seemingly based on what he said in, in the press, like not burdensome, but something he views as an opportunity and something that's exciting for him. And mm-hmm. so it's nice. It's just a nice thing. Plus, you know, so many Shoei puns available to us. Oh, I know. Just and, like, and they pass them all up. I mean, you'd think just like a one-year rebrand or something, right. right? I mean, just MLB the show. Just take the lap off the W on the end or yeah. have him block it out on the yes. cover or something. Yes. But <laughs> they did not opt for any of those things. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's early. Like there's still marketing mm-hmm. to be done here so we shouldn't yes. count them out but yes it, it is well it's it's something i wouldn't be able to resist which is perhaps why i don't work in corporate pr 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, it does seem like a bit of a missed opportunity. I, I don't think there's a localized version of the game in Japan, as far as I know. And there are some franchises that are more popular in Japan or, you know, more popular there than here, just sort of Japanese language baseball video games. So I guess that could account for it. But given the popularity of PlayStation and baseball, and now with Otani on the cover, you would think that there'd be more of an effort there. So maybe there will be. Anyway, always happy to see Otani celebrated in any way, shape, or form. And while we are talking about Japanese baseball, I just wanted to bring up, I don't know whether you saw the latest look debuted by new Nipponham Fighters manager, Siyoshi Shinjo, but it is incredible. I don't know whether you saw his outfit last year when the fighters hired him as manager and he showed up at the press conference looking like a bad guy from the Yakuza series. Like he had this entirely red suit on with a huge collar, like kind of this like disco style. Yeah, I'll I'll send you, and of course I will link to uh, all of this on the show page. But I just sent you his latest oh my outfit. Gosh. <laughs> That's wow. when he showed up to spring training, I believe. I'm also sending you his fit from his introductory press conference last November. <laughs> this is what he wore, and he told the media that he wanted to be addressed as Big Boss. And I believe most of them were happy to oblige. And Shinjo, I mean, he's just been a a character for a long time, going back to his playing career and his brief time in MLB. He was with the Giants and the Mets in the early 2000s, and he was quite charismatic even then. And I really admire that. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a big Mets fan and fondly remembers Shinjo from his time with the Mets, and he was saying that... Being a weirdo in sports is really damn hard to do. (laughs) Like, it kind of drums the weirdos out or it makes the weirdos suppress their weirdness. Yeah. And Shinjo has never had any of his personality suppressed. And he's like a legitimate celebrity in Japan. I mean, going beyond baseball, like, he has his own fashion line and he's on TV as just sort of a celebrity who got famous from baseball, but then kind of parlayed that into more renown, I think, but he is not at all conforming to stereotypes of what a manager should look like or dress like or be called. And I am fascinated by this experiment because he's about as unorthodox a managerial pick as one could imagine. And maybe even more so in NPB than here. Not that we have any managers like this here, but I would say at least in some respects, Japanese baseball culture is more conservative and conformist. And Shinjo is just completely breaking the mold in every way. I mean, he just turned 50, I think, last week. So happy 50th to Shinjo. But he looks great. He's in great shape. He is, you know, he's got like model-like looks. And he actually tried to make an MPP comeback like less than two years ago, I think, in 2020. And of course, he had a, a long and fairly illustrious career in NPP and finished that career with the fighters who have hired him now. But Raised a lot of eyebrows when he was hired because he can only be himself and there is no one at all like him. So he looks like, yeah, Tom Cruise crossed with, like, as I said, like (laughs) some villain from Yakuza and WWE's (sighs) Shinsuke Nakamura or something. Like, it's all of those things 
crust and yet distinctive as just Shinjo, and he is not dialing it down one iota as the new manager of the fighters. So I had seen, uh, now that you've sent these to me, I had seen the the suit from his introductory <laughs> press conference, though I had forgotten yeah. the, big, the big boss detail. But Ben, <laughs> yeah. I have to ask you several questions about this jacket he's wearing in the other photo, <laughs> the most important of which is, are there pieces of real baseball mitts on his jacket? Like, there is... I can't tell. Those are is, mitts, right? Yeah, there but, is, like, dimension-seeming to this. Yeah, they're they're distorted, though. It's like the, the fingers of the gloves are, like, yeah. longer. It, it's, like, sort of psychedelic, some kind of <laughs> Dali-style baseball gloves. It's almost as if... They took the glove and undid all of the stitching that binds the front of it to the back right. to help elongate and distort some of the the thingies, the digits <laughs> that are here. Yeah. But the at least in the photo that you sent me, it appears that there is like enough sort of texture here that I'm I'm only able to conclude and forced to conclude that there are bits of glove just like on this jacket not exclusively yeah. but and also oh I I hadn't noticed the shoes until this oh, moment the shoes yeah are the exquisite. shoes yeah the shoes and also he's, he's appear to jeans under his like yeah. <laughs> baseball glove it's it's kind of like he's wearing these shoes under the Technicolor dream coat yes. and it's kind of like a <laughs> a raincoat style <laughs> thing with like a oh, yeah. WWE belt kind of and like Tom Cruise Top Gun glasses and like blindingly white teeth. <laughs> yeah, and he Just, does sort of have that like, you know, cruise of a certain Mission Impossible yes. era hair too. Yes. So he's working with that. Are these jeans boot cut? I guess what is the appropriate fashion statement for a jacket like this? I mean, yeah. how do you, I could see getting to the point where you've like, you've assembled the jacket, you have the shoes and then you're like, oh crap, I have to wear pants. <laughs> I think he could probably fit that, the ball in his hand that he seems to be tossing as he's just walking through an airport. Is this an airport? Yeah. Into one of the many gloves that seem to be sewn onto this jacket. Look, I'll say this. I want people to be themselves. Nothing about mm -hmm. this is bothersome. It is a lot. Like, we can say it's a lot. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of look. But it mm -hmm. is a look that he seems thrilled about so um i think he should be himself uh yeah. as much as possible i don't know that i would ever have the confidence to ask someone to call me big boss like <laughs> i guess i am a boss in a way not yep. in like a you can you go know, by big boss yeah managing no, I, editor slash big boss right no no thank you that's that's <laughs> that doesn't sit well with me that doesn't fit my vibe we never hear about vibes at the at these negotiations between the pa and the league like it would be great if if everyone just dropped a tweet that was like you know they didn't get anywhere yeah. but the vibe was good that would be nice be the like, vibes mm. are heated yeah oh, man. <laughs> so anyway this is delightful yeah it's like manager meets runway model he's just like the most manager Who you could imagine this? and I don't know. I maybe it's part of his line. Fashion I would line? Oh, it it's, has it's to be good right? promotion, I would think. But no one seems to know what to expect from him exactly, just as a manager. I, I've read a lot of the English language coverage from people like Jim Allen and Jason Coskery who've been on the show before, and it seems like the mood is perplexed maybe about the hiring partly like he does seem to have some baseball acumen obviously and, and relates well to the players and certainly the media and I guess part of the thought is that he will just 
take the spotlight away from the players, which could be good or could be bad. Like in a way, he is uh, lifting the pressure from them somewhat because the manager is getting all the attention. And I found this piece in the Kyoto News from last November headlined ex-major leaguer Shinjo projected to bring in 53 million as fighters manager. That is 53 million U.S. dollars, 6 billion yen. And there is a a professor here who came up with an economic estimate of (laughs) the benefits to the region of hiring Shinjo. And this might be one of those suspect economic estimates that we hear about with with ballparks all the time. But still the idea that you can hire a manager and he'd projected to boost attendance at the team's games by about 5% and shore up advertising revenue and sales of fighters goods and upon him merchandise that is uh, assuming that the fighters are a competent team that they remain among the top three and the benefits would be halved this professor said if the team performs worse although i guess if the team is less entertaining then maybe having a manager be entertaining might be more valuable in some ways but this kind of goes against everything that is happening in mlb now because you used to have celebrity managers sometimes and maybe back when baseball dominated the sports discussion and pop culture more so than it does now but you had managers like Casey Stengel and Leo DeRocher I mean these were like famous people who would go on quiz shows and people knew them right or that have cameos in movies and now you don't get that so much and if anything you probably get less personality from managers. Managers are just kind of middle managers now, right? Like they're supposed to keep the clubhouse running in an orderly fashion and implement a lot of the front office's guidance and be the go-betweens really. And they're not seen as people who you want to distract from the players or to be big personalities really. And Shinjo is just, you know, the polar opposite of that. And I guess the fighters do have a history of being somewhat unorthodox. This is, of course, Shohei Otani's old team. And so they have had some managers and GMs who have been unafraid to go against tradition and try things like dedicated two-way players. And they have a new manager now and a new GM, and it's a new regime, but there is that lineage there. But it's just really fascinating to see what he turns out to be. And he doesn't even seem totally sure what kind of manager he will be either. <laughs> but he he had some really interesting quotes that uh, maybe I can read a, a few selected ones. But sure. it's it's kind of hard to tell like whether he's joking or not because oh, he's no. he's kind of playing a character. Right. He's like half mascot, half manager, and I don't know whether this is serious or or whether he is just being an entertainer here because that's partly what he was brought in to do. So he said, honestly speaking, I was more surprised than anyone by the offer. On the one hand, I wondered if it was okay for me to do it. On the other, I thought maybe I was the only one for the job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess if you don't think you're the only one for the job, you probably don't then ask people to call you big boss, right? You have, like, to be asked to ask people to call you that requires a, a confidence we won't call it hubris we'll just say a confidence right it requires mm-hmm. you to look around and be like i'm the biggest boss 
Yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, he has joked, I guess, about like not even having a coaching staff, which doesn't seem like a great idea. He did say, I'm absolutely not going to aspire to win the championship. <laughs> he said, if you have too high a goal, it might not work. You win one game by staying loose, then win another and so on. In that way, if you're in the pennant race in September, you can say, well, let's try to win it all. And I kind of like that attitude. I think it is expected for managers in Japan and maybe everywhere to just say, yeah, we think we have a championship club here. We think we can go all the way. And Shinjo is saying, I don't know, you know, (laughs) that's not our goal explicitly. And maybe that puts too much pressure on the players and we'll just try to win one game at a time, which is another kind of cliche. But I kind of like that, that he is setting a different goal there. I think that it allows you wiggle room and it's sort of an acknowledgement of how strange an endeavor it is to like play a season because there are plenty of things that you can do exactly the right way with good process and get crummy results, right? And so I think that there's a realism to that that is sort of interesting when thinking about someone who's like, I am the big boss. Call me big boss. Right. So it's a... It's a a multicolored dream code of an approach to the world, really, if you think Mm -hmm. about it, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Jason wrote in the Japan Times last week, so far, everything has been all about Shinjo. In the Nipponham universe, he is the sun and everything else is merely in his orbit. Eventually, though, the fighters are going to have to put a team on the field and play games. (laughs) But he says the big boss show will most likely continue early on in camp as attention remains fixed on what Shinjo will do or say next. The benefit, though, will be that the fighters should be able to work in relative peace while the spotlight shines on the manager. So Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I wonder how his players feel about this, because on the one hand, you know, it is a a shift of focus away from them, but that might be welcome in some instances, especially early in the season when you're, you know, getting back into the the swing of things and trying to figure out where you fit and whatnot. So I wonder how I wonder how his guys feel about all this. Yeah, I could see some of them resenting it potentially. At least eventually, <laughs> but uh, maybe they would also welcome the distraction, just being able to go about their business in relative peace. But yeah, I would be fascinated to see something like this happen in MLB. I mean, what's the closest, like the most sartorially ad- adventurous manager we've had in recent years is oh, probably Joe Madden, right? Yeah. And not all of his adventures were successful <laughs> somewhere, but he's gone through various incarnations and looks over the years but really he can't come close he can't hold a candle to the big boss i guess that we have seen in recent years more of a shift toward the eccentric gm and i still think that's a relative rarity because you know the ivs tend to to be eccentricity out of you but you know like we have depoto and we have prowler and you know you have sort of that kind of especially in contrast to some of the more buttoned up front offices like you know, the the trading gunslinger type. Mm-hmm. I guess the most like personality driven manager we have right now, I guess Madden is an answer to that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to call him personality driven because that feels disrespectful to like all of the life experience he brings. But like, you know, Dusty is like kind of larger than life in his own way, right? Because he's just yeah. been in the game for so long. He carries so much perspective with him you know i think because of his his agent experience he's you know sort of elevated and distinct from um, a lot of his contemporaries and then you have like the like (laughs) 
I have to be so careful about how I characterize this. Well, then you have Gabe Kapler. Let's just leave it at that, right? So then you have like the Gabe Kapler type where it's like, there's mm-hmm. definitely stuff going on there. And some yeah. of it is, you know, it might not be like interesting from a sartorial perspective, but um, mm-hmm. is is kind of curious at, at, at yeah. moments. I mean, Dusty has his toothpick, which is kind of right? iconic, but <laughs> the toothpick cannot compare no. to this getup. And apparently he also joked <laughs> I, I I question whether it's a joke about having his players and also having himself descend to the Sapporo Dome surface from the ceiling, which he once did as a player, and no one Boy. could really tell whether he was serious about that. He also said, I enjoy thinking up tactics and translating them into action. And Jim Allen writes, he looked completely serious about being the innovator of a tactical revolution that will sweep Japan as teams learn to, quote, score without getting hits, which does seem like it would be a pretty valuable skill if you could score without getting hits. Now, whether that means he's going to double down and triple down on small ball (laughs) and manufacture runs, maybe that's what that means. But I don't know. It's also possible that all of this larger-than-life character masks a serious scholar of the game. Like, he had a long career. He was known for being diligent in his preparation and keeping himself in shape and everything. And it might be kind of like Casey Stengel, where it was sort of a smokescreen for this smart baseball mind, right? And yeah, he was incredibly quotable, and you couldn't always understand exactly what he said. And he looked like no one else, but also he was a great manager, at least when he had the players at his disposal to implement. So it could be something similar with Shinjo where, yeah, maybe it's a sideshow. Maybe they're just trying to sell some tickets. Maybe this will backfire horribly, or maybe it will turn out that he is not just surface. He is also substance and that this was kind of camouflaging a brilliant baseball mind all along. But at the very least, I think he is uh, making (laughs) the atmosphere more permissive for people to be themselves and also potentially for players to be themselves and not to have one set way of doing things and to embrace strange mechanics or whatever works for them as opposed to having some rigid system where you have to learn to play a certain way or express yourself or not express yourself in a certain way. So in that sense, I think it is a breath of fresh air. So I wish him well. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are plenty of very stuffy sort of buttoned up managers who get crummy results. And so we shouldn't assume that just because someone is sort of a freer spirit and has a a more expressive posture that they're automatically going to be bad at it. Like, we don't know yet. We'll find out. That's the Mm -hmm. great. See, this is like the great thing about baseball because we're just going to find out because they're going to play some games and then we'll be like, oh, that's a good team or a bad team. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think that, you know, playing playing the game the right way necessarily Mm -hmm. leads to success. Those seem to be not perfectly correlated to one another. So we have no reason to think that playing it in a way that's a little looser will uh, result in, in bad results either. Yep. All right. And lastly, I guess we should maybe bid farewell briefly to Tom Brady as well. Tom Brady, the baseball player. I don't know whether you were happy or sorry to see him go. (laughs) It seemed like a lot of people were happy to dance on his football grave or just happy to be rid of him because he beat them for 20 years. But he has finally announced his retirement after days of conflicting reports about whether he was retiring or not. He is, and he has a very long Instagram post to show for it. And so baseball Twitter was, of course, bidding goodbye to Tom Brady, the baseball player, 
and the former Expos draftee. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were noting that he was, by some definitions, the last active athlete who was drafted by the Montreal Expos. That is presuming that Ian Desmond doesn't continue to play, and I guess it's also excluding Bartolo Colon, who has continued to pitch professionally, although not in the majors. But Tom Brady, of course, famously drafted by the Expos in the 1995 draft in the 18th round, but only that low because he was committed to going to be a quarterback in college and his football career was clearly going to take precedence there. So the Expos just took a flyer on him in the 18th round and offered him a a good bunch of money, maybe not formally, but they basically offered him like second or third round money because he was seen as sort of a second round talent as a catcher. And opted for football and don't think we can say that he chose (laughs) unwisely. I think it worked out pretty well for him. I think it worked out fine. I don't know. I don't want to bore people with my like protracted football Tom Brady thoughts. Like I think that he he was so good and thus despisable from an on-field perspective in like a really useful way (laughs) Mm -hmm. but one that also carried with it an an understanding of just how incredible his career was and I think that what he did in Tampa is pretty remarkable not just Mm -hmm. in football but just in professional sports generally to leave your your franchise after that much success and then immediately take another team to the Super Bowl and win is pretty remarkable I will say that the Patriots Super Bowl against the Seahawks is one of my more traumatic sports memories and I want it to stop being replayed when they play one another more than anything in the entire world but like that trauma wasn't really Tom Brady's fault per se so you know I can um, let him off the hook for that part I don't know I don't I don't think of him as like a baseball guy. Mm-hmm. And I especially have trouble thinking of him as a catcher. Yeah. Like I could see Tom Brady. Doesn't Tom Brady seem like he he would have to be a starting pitcher? Like just in terms <laughs> of our understanding of him within the context of football and sort of the intensity that he brought. And, you know, he, he often looked like he was just going to like – murder people if they disappointed him and some of that reads as like big starter energy to me so Mm. the idea of him you know when you're the catcher you get to be involved all the time and you're sort of helping your your pitcher be the but can you imagine if you were a pitcher and you shook off tom brady what he would do (laughs) he might beat you up he might just yeah. throw his, his protector off and his mask at you and then beat you up. So I don't know that there's like a there's a fine line between having leadership qualities and being sort of dictatorial in a way that I don't <laughs> I don't know. I think that catchers want to stay more toward the leadership side than the dictator side when they're right. yeah. they're thinking I mean, about their vibe. So catchers called or, or known as the quarterback of the right. field or the defense, right? So it makes sense in that way. In that but. way. But <laughs> he has big he has like big starting pitcher energy to me. Mm-hmm. I doubt he regrets it. Do you think he gets to like eat bread and stay up late now? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. After Have a strawberry all this time, finally? Right, having a strawberry, right. I mean... I don't believe that the... story. Do you believe that story? <laughs> I don't that's, think that's real. It's kind of like the Gabe Kapler stories, <laughs> which yeah. you were just alluding to yeah, about him like, spitting out like, ice cream or whatever. charming, but... and I'm like, that sounds like disordered eating to me. But anyway, I don't right. believe the strawberry thing. Like, as a child, surely he had a strawberry. 
Yeah, you'd think, right? One time, even just on accident at like a sleepover, you know, it's like, oh, we get to stay up late and we get to eat strawberries. We're so transgressive. Yeah. I don't know what kind of arm he had as a pitcher, but famously pretty good arm, Tom Brady. So right. I imagine yeah, he might have been be able to, to make it as a, a pitcher. But as a catcher, he was also known for having a good arm, sure. obviously. But he really, like, it sounds like he was the total package. I mean, I went back and I've read a few accounts and retrospectives of his high school baseball career with quotes from former Expos executives and scouts who saw him and signed him or wanted to sign him, drafted him. And they are all extremely complimentary about him. And it's hard to know whether there's a a halo effect about his baseball career once you know how his football career turned out and what kind of personality he became. Maybe you look back even more fondly on his baseball career. But from those accounts, at least, it sounds like, I mean, he was a legitimate talent, like kind of a Joe Maurer-esque catcher, you know, sort of similar frame and had the leadership ability and the the good face and all of that and could call a good game and had a great arm and also had some power. You know, he hit, I think, 311 in high school with eight homers in 61 games, something like that. But people talked about, you know, how he was a leader and it just inspired his teammates and all of those things that you would assume would be true probably of Tom Brady. But, you know, right-handed thrower, obviously left-handed hitting catcher. And it sounds like he had it all going for him and scouts at least said, yeah, he could be a a future all-star type talent. The coach of his high school baseball team said that he had seven catchers who went on to play professionally and Brady was better than any of them. And Brady also went to the same high school as Barry Bonds, which is kind of cool. Potentially the, the goat in multiple sports went to the same high school. But it's really kind of an interesting what if, although less interesting, I guess, because when you turn out to be the best of all time, there's not like that much intrigue in asking, well, how good would he have been at baseball? Like, right. <laughs> not as good as he was at football, almost, <laughs> football, I think it's safe to say. Almost certainly. So, like, yeah. I, I suppose there is a timeline where he is the best baseball player to ever live or whatever mm-hmm. like that i guess we have to acknowledge that that is a possibility but he is quite literally the best quarterback to ever right. play football yeah so. and and sometimes i mean one of the arguments for choosing baseball over football for a multi-sport athlete is hey you'll get less banged up you'll have a longer career <laughs> right <Yeah>. like <laughs> i don't think that applies to brady either unless he was going to be carlton fisk or something like right. he had a 20-year career in the nfl and was still playing at a high level at age 44 so tough to beat that especially for a catcher <laughs> so he got the longevity he also got the fame and all of the other trappings that come with being the best ever at your sport so yes i think he chose wisely but there's a, a lineage of you know guys like that the kyler murray's and the john elways who mm-hmm. had some hypothetical baseball career and you wonder what if, although in this case, I guess it's more interesting to wonder how would football have been different without Tom Brady than it is to wonder how would baseball have been different with Tom Brady. So mm, a football without Tom Brady. Mm. <laughs> yeah. A lot of well, other fan bases probably would have been happier over the past yeah. 20 years, I guess. I mean, <laughs> it's such an interesting thing to contemplate because I and I don't say this to take anything away from Tom Brady even though I guess I am about to do that but he's not a listener so it's fine it's like uh you know how much how much of Tom Brady's success is Tom Brady 
Like, what is Bill Belichick without Tom Brady? That might be the yep. most interesting question to contemplate. And we've gotten a preview of it, you know, at various points in Belichick's career, obviously. But mm-hmm. when you think about his most successful eras, they were sort of peas in a, a very strange and at times gruff pod. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting counterfactual to contemplate. But yeah, I guess, uh, you know, fare thee well. Go eat a strawberry. <laughs> Stop trying to sell me crypto. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Apparently, the Expos brought him in for a workout after the draft, and or it was really just a, a meet and greet. They were giving him the VIP treatment and trying to seduce him away from his football career. And so they paired him up with some players, major leaguers, minor leaguers, one of whom was FP Santangelo. And I guess they thought that those players would help talk Brady into the baseball life. And instead, just the opposite happened. And they were Uh. like, dude, what are you doing here? Like, (laughs) go enjoy college, like be the big star at Michigan. (laughs) You know, you don't want to ride the bus in the minors for years and years and maybe never make it. So they kind of talked him even more into playing football, which he probably would have done anyway. (sighs) But you know, anyway, it's uh, sad to see the last expo sort yeah. of go, I guess. I've had this thought before, and I I appreciate, like, where he was drafted in the NFL relative to what his talent ended up being. But, like, the sort of underdog quality to it has always seemed odd to me, particularly after he had success. And it seems especially strange when, like, you had teams that were quite interested in signing you for, like, overslot bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, I don't know. Seems like you maybe were invested in that narrative and it didn't fit. I don't I don't know. I don't, it's just, these are just thoughts I'm having that I'm sure we won't get any emails about at all. <laughs> right. All right. So what we did want to talk about was another email from a listener named Ben and his wife, Kristen. And they wrote to us this week. And this is Ben writing. He said, since we got married, my wife and I have made it a nightly ritual to watch a few minutes of Ken Burns's baseball documentary before going to sleep. We usually stick to the episodes in black and white. There's something about the use of still photographs and the period appropriate music that lends itself to cuddling up in bed and drifting off to dreamland. Perhaps this is an indictment of the documentary itself. It literally puts us to sleep every night, but I think we would just call it soothing. That's a much kinder word. And I would call it soothing, too, because sometimes we hear from people who use Effectively Wild as a sleep aid. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't take that as an insult either. All right. We've watched so much of this documentary that our favorite lines have become part of our lexicons. For example, my wife will often recite what Don Little said to Marv Grissom after Willie Mays made that improbable over-the-shoulder catch in the 1954 World Series. Little had relieved Sal Magley and was brought in to pitch to one batter, Vic Wirtz. It was Wirtz's long fly ball to center that Willie Mays caught. Now with Little being relieved by Grissom, Little waited for Grissom to reach the mound, then handed him the ball and said, I got my man. That's a great story. This is the line my wife will often use after putting one of our two children down to bed Mm -hmm. while I'm still trying to wrangle the other. All right. Anyway, we recently ventured off into the episodes covering more recent years and watched the last episode, The Tenth Inning, which came out in 2010, 16 years after the first set of nine innings was made. It made us wonder, it's been 12 years now since The Tenth Inning. Is Ken Burns planning to produce an 11th? One of the starkest moments in the most recent episodes is a writer and Giants fan musing about whether he will ever see a Giants championship in his lifetime. Little did he know that there were three to come in the next five World Series. We'd love to see him interviewed again after all that postseason success. So our question to you both is, if Ken Burns consulted you on what stories should be told in the 11th inning, what would you include? And... 
there has been some speculation about an 11th inning happening at some point. I think back in 2010, when the 10th inning came out, Burns suggested that maybe he would make an 11th inning in 2020. Obviously, that didn't happen. But at the time, he said that if he were to do it, he would start with Armando Galarraga and the imperfect, perfect game. But that was a long time ago. A lot has happened since then. He was also asked about this last April on the Hollywood Reporter TV podcast. And I will play a brief clip from that here. I'm curious from your point of view, after an unprecedented season like 2020, are you tempted to explore that with an 11th inning, having already obviously done the 10th? I made a huge mistake after the 10th (laughs) inning. People said, you're going to do an 11th. And I said, well... I suppose, meaning no, but if the Cubs were won the World Series, yeah, right? Because that was the last remaining big, you know, domino to fall after my Red Sox won, which was, you know, one of the reasons we made the update of the 10th inning. Not the only reason, but many other things, steroids and strikes and money and, and uh, Yankees and Braves and stuff like that. So um, we... Um, yeah, there's there's one. And I think the pandemic season sort of adds yet another storyline that we could do it. The problem is bandwidth. You know, the older I get, the more projects I'm working on because I'm just greedy. You know, I want to do I have I, I, if I were given a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of stories in American history. There's just you know, you just have feel that urgency of time and you want to keep doing it. So it's finding that that sweet spot to do it. So basically, he said he'd like to. He just has to find the time. So it could happen, and he went 16 years between the ninth and 10th innings. Maybe he'll go 16 between the 10th and 11th, and we'll get this in 2026 or something, in which case we have a few more years of history here that we don't even know about yet. But based on what we do know now, we just wanted to briefly talk about what the big storylines would be or what the theme of the 11th inning would be if we could identify one. And just to recap, I think the ninth inning, you know, the the original doc aired during the 94 strike, right? And sort of ironically ended on the note of saying, oh, the World Series has survived everything and has never been canceled. (laughs) And then it was just then. But that's when it ended. So the 10th inning basically picked up from... 92, which was more or less where the ninth inning had left off. And so it included the mid-90s labor strife and the strike and the steroid era and Barry Bonds and the Yankees dynasty and the internationalization of the game and Cal Ripken and Red Sox-Yankees and the Red Sox breaking their curse. Burns, of course, is a big Red Sox fan. And I think it ended with the 2009 World Series. I think that was the last thing covered, although maybe the second half of that decade was sort of skimmed over. But that's where it ended. So, you know, 2010 on (laughs) what would have to be the focuses of the 11th inning. I was thinking about this when we got the question. I would feel for Burns a little bit because I think that some of the themes that you would have to highlight in order to do justice to that decade of baseball don't really lend themselves to like great cinema (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. you know like I think you would have to talk about analytics like that would have to be a central thrust of it right there's no way you can tell the story of that decade of baseball without centering how data has altered the way that we understand the game how we understand who's good in the game how teams go about developing players and then I guess from there you would 
use that as an entry point to some of the strange profit and winning incentives that the game has has experienced over the last decade, whether it's, you know, spending some time on the phenomenon of tanking as it's sort mm-hmm. of broadly understood or the decoupling of profit and winning mm-hmm. because that's clearly been an important if unfortunate theme of the last decade so i think that that's probably where you start and that maybe gives you a natural transition into talking about sign stealing right because you yeah. kind of have to end it with that or maybe not end it but you know the what happened with houston sort of has to be a part of that conversation so yeah that's sort of the beginning and then gosh you could do an entire episode on the pandemic and its effect on baseball Right. Yeah. I was listening to a little bit more of that Hollywood Reporter podcast, and they did ask him about the Astros and the sign-stealing scandal, and he sounded sort of underwhelmed by it, like he kind of poo-pooed it, and maybe he wouldn't if he actually made the documentary, but his take was basically like, oh, you know, this goes back to Bobby Thompson. Like, this isn't new. You know, if you have some awareness of of baseball history, then this is just the latest incarnation of that. And of course, it goes back well beyond Bobby Thompson. But it was such a huge story. Yeah. And it was a bigger story than Bobby Thompson and and really any previous sign-stealing scandal because of the way it came out and the fact that it came out with a player who went on the record to talk about it and just a couple of years after the fact as opposed to decades down the line. And so it was still very fresh and a lot of those players were still on that team and it was just so scandalous and also you could hear it, you know, there was auditory evidence of it happening so you didn't have to rely on hearsay essentially. So right. for all those reasons, it was obviously just an enormous story. I don't know whether it had a huge effect on the course of baseball history. I mean, obviously, like there were crackdowns on sign stealing, but beyond that, I don't know whether there will be continued reverberating effects. But yeah, I mean, in the 10th inning, he talked about one form of cheating and steroid use. So he would have to find some time for not only sign stealing in this one, but also sticky stuff, presumably. And yeah, I think if you were going to try to come up with one framing device so that you're not just saying and then this happened and then that happened probably yeah like the analytics era right which had already begun when the 10th inning aired but was a little less prevalent then and we can sort of see the arc of it now and not that I would want the whole thing to just be about like three true outcomes and strikeouts and pitcher usage and all of that but That has been a really big part of baseball history over the past 10 years. So if you wanted to hang a bunch of other trends on that, then that suggests itself as kind of the most obvious thing. Like, yeah, I mean, you could talk about the economic changes, as you said, doesn't really lend itself to riveting documentary material necessarily. Like, we don't even have the books. It's just talking about, like, payouts from ML BAM and revenue right. sharing and, like, you know, big broadcast TV money and all those national deals and all of that. Like, you'd have to mention that, but it's not super fun to talk about or hear about, I guess. So maybe it is more entertaining to keep the focus on the field and the way that baseball tactics have changed and 
the player development changes and the skills that are emphasized now are just generally like velocity going way up over that period or strikeouts going way up over that period or just pitcher usage changing starters going much less deep into games like that would have to be a big part of the theme of the 11th inning I think yeah and then I think as you look ahead I mean we're probably too early in this story to tell it now but like I imagine the 12th inning is going to have a gambling component to it right like if we're thinking about the things that are sort of big monumental shifts in the way that the sport thinks about itself obviously analytics has a much bigger impact on the play that we end up seeing on the field and you know how players are selected and developed but it's still wild to me the shift the sort of philosophical shift toward gambling <laughs> has yep. has gone on and i understand that like you know when people say that they're like what about Pete rose and it's like well Pete rose is doing like a very specific bad thing so like that is i get why that is invoked but it is i think importantly different than like having a sports book at the ballpark but holy crap there's gonna be sports <laughs> books at several ballparks it's yes not just one, Ben, yeah, several. No, there was so, news about that this week, right? With Nationals, yeah. the Cubs maybe too. Cubs, yeah. D-backs mm-hmm. are reportedly going to be in that business soon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we look ahead to kind of what the next offshoot of the way that the league understands, like how it funds itself and makes money, you know, that is going to be the the next weird frontier and we probably can't even anticipate the the stories that we're going to end up telling as a result of that i don't Mm -hmm. know that the league can either which might mean that they should slow down a little bit but that's a conversation (laughs) for another day yeah so much has happened in the past decade that i don't know if it's recency bias or not but it seems like it's been more eventful (laughs) than a lot of previous decades at least just in the overhaul that's happened in the way that the game is played and the economics of the game I mean you could start out with the Giants presumably and their playoff runs and their World Series and Buster Posey's injury and the Chase Utley slide and, and the changes that came from that but you also have the Cubs breaking their curse which is you know if you had to pick a single baseball story of that decade It's probably the Cubs finally winning the World Series, right? And I think that Burns has said and and said in that podcast that he joked about having to bring the documentary back if the Cubs finally won a World Series, and they did. So you'd have to talk about that, too. Mm -hmm. And then you do have, you know, you have Trout. You have Harper. You have Otani? Of course you have Otani. That's got to be in there, too. You have, well, I mean, playoff expansion and restructuring, right? I mean, the wild card game was a a new thing during that decade. Instant replay, I guess, at at least uh, extended instant replay was a new thing. You know, pitch FX, stat cast, just like, you know, robot umps in the minors, just all of that has to be part of it too and I guess the question is like who's the signature team of that period which is a question that I considered in an article at the end of 2019 I I wrote an article for the ringer about like what was the team of the decade which is sort of a silly prompt because you end up spending the entire time defining what you mean by team of the decade yes is it the team that won the most games is it the team that won the most championships what is it and ultimately it came down to the giants and the astros for me and i went with the astros not 
just because they had been successful, like you could certainly make a case for the Giants just based on winning the most rings, but I went with the Astros because I felt like they were the most emblematic of the decade. Like they were the team that was just most synonymous with a lot of the trends of that decade. They were the team that went the furthest in on tanking. And then they were a team that built up one of the best super teams of all time and certainly of that decade. And they were a team that was associated with the changes in player development. And I published that piece just prior to the revelations about sign stealing. <laughs> and so <laughs> I did get some Sorry, uh, <laughs> some Giants fans who were mad at me were tweeting like, oh, how about now? And in a way, though, I think that only strengthened my case. Yeah. Because uh, my case was not the Astros are the most virtuous team right, of the right. decade. Like, if anything, uh, they're the most nefarious. But they are the team that was just like at the center of all of the scandals, all of the innovations. Like, it was just all... Astros, you know, and maybe they're more villains than heroes or they're anti-heroes or some combination of both. But whether it's sign stealing or sticky stuff or whatever, like whatever big trend happened during the period from 2010 to 2020, like the Astros were at the center of it. So I don't really regret that decision, I guess. So the Astros would have to be a big part of the story. Yeah. As would the Giants, I think, for different reasons. And then probably the Dodgers have to Mm -hmm. be in there, too. And then the Cubs just for that lone World Series. So I think you'd want to have and, you know, those those teams could be an entry point to some of this stuff, too, just given the success that they have had from a player development and drafting perspective. Like, I think you can't tell the labor story of the last decade, you know, you certainly would want to talk about sort of how badly the relationship between the Players Association and the league has frayed and what some of the idea, like reasons for that sort of uh, those issues are. But I, I think you also can't really tell that story without talking about the minor leagues in the international space, right? Like you can't talk about labor in the last decade of MLB without talking about, you know, for instance, the last big scandal before the Astros Mm -hmm. (laughs) stealing scandal, like everything that happened in Atlanta. And you can't Mm -hmm. talk about the last decade without talking about minor league contraction and how the experience of the minors has really galvanized that piece of baseball and that space in baseball and the people who occupy it to try to advocate for themselves and, you know, assert a right to a living wage. So maybe he just has to do a whole new doc. Like, <laughs> you know, doing 10 years in, I guess it was a, a, a wild project to try to do all of the history that preceded that in the yeah. number of innings he had. But I think you're right that so, so much has happened. And some of our understanding of its importance to the history of the game is definitely recency bias, but also uh, if only so that we could get more photos moving across the screen in color. (laughs) I think I'm advocating for a a much longer doc. You could do, you know, and you could do a chapter on analytics. You could do an inning on labor. Those are, of course, related concepts. You could do, you know, Mm -hmm. you should have like one fun actual baseball Inning, sure. I think, yeah. right? Like you could just have a very long home run montage. <laughs> oh, the ball. 
Oh my gosh. The ball. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh. So much has happened. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, I don't even know how to sum that up because we're still wondering what the heck is going on. Oh but gosh. yes, the, the debate about the ball's construction and the record home run rates yeah. would have to be part of this. Yeah. And uh, also, I guess the, the last day of the 2011 regular season, if you just want some fun on-field sure. action, yeah. that would be part of the story too. I mentioned Trout and Harper and, and Otani. I mean, Kershaw's got to be part of the story of yeah. that decade too so yeah i think the 10th inning was like a top of the 10th and bottom of the 10th it was yeah. like four hours yes i think you might need more than that to really do justice to the story of the last 10 years of baseball and now it's more than 10 years it's 12 years and you got the whole pandemic season and who knows what comes next with the next cba and do we lose games again because then that makes this work stoppage a bigger story as well and then are there bigger on-field changes in the next few years you know do we get a mound move do we get robot umps whatever all of these changes that are being tested more aggressively in indie ball or in the minors could be coming to a mlb ballpark near you so that could be part of the story like baseball finally confronting its issues with uh, contact or pace of play and trying to modernize or appeal to a younger audience, etc. So, boy, there are just a lot of threads to follow here. So you better get started on this before much more history happens. Yeah. Gosh, the ball. I don't know. I feel like baseball needs to get its act together. <laughs> this is too much not on the field stuff. Yeah. It's... Uh, mm. I can't wait for the emails we're going to get being like, what about this thing? And then we'll be like, yes, that is also a thing that we need to, or like, think about, you could do, you could do episodes on the ways, you could do an episode entirely on the ways that baseball is and is not le living up to like some of the, you know, diversity and inclusion initiatives it's sure, had, yeah. right? Like you could do an episode on the women who are coaching now and all of the folks who you know, probably should be getting those opportunities and still aren't. Like, there's just all kinds of stuff happening. Yeah. yeah. And the original baseball doc was uh, pretty good about shedding more light on the Negro Leagues, at, at least by the standards at the time, and obviously yeah. introduced Buck O'Neill to a wider audience and, you know, talked about Josh Gibson and Satchel Page. But maybe you could also talk about the reclassification of the Negro Leagues during this past decade. And I don't know whether it would make sense to cover, like, the centennial of the founding of the Negro Leagues and some of the events that happened around sure. that or just go back and add another supplemental Negro Leagues episode now that yeah. there's so much data available yeah. and so much more research that's been done. For sure. You know, So it's kind of opening Pandora's box if you're like, yeah, go back and do even more about those earlier eras. But particularly with the Negro Leagues, there's just much more that has come yeah, to light. Yeah, we have so, so much more information. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we could do we could do a really good job of telling more of that story with a lot of you know richness richness and texture to it in a way that even five years ago 10 years ago we couldn't really do quite the same way yeah that would be great you'd probably want to say something about like bonds and clemens not getting into the hall of fame yeah. as a capper to yeah, the, the whole story. hall of fame debate right yes following up with how the writers have handled or not handled that era yeah. and ken to be clear if for whatever reason you end up listening to our silly little baseball show I am not asking for an entire episode on Hall of Fame discourse. Oh, no. <laughs> I want you to know that that is not a thing that I'm asking for. I'm saying 
that like it is a thing that you probably have to reckon with in some way, shape, or form because it it sort of completes a, a chapter of this story that you started to tell. But it doesn't need to be an entire episode. It should be as mm-hmm. little of it as possible. Just like go talk to Jay and then be done. Yeah, the WBC, I guess the WBC started in 2006. I don't remember whether that was mentioned at all in the 10th inning, but uh, that's become a, a bigger deal at times, I guess. And yeah, there are some tragedies too. I mean, the the deaths of Jose Fernandez or Oscar Tavares or, you know, maybe uh, kind of the, the reckoning with domestic violence that has yeah. happened in MLB over the past several years. It's hard to know how to balance the on-field and right. off-field stuff, but that's been pretty significant too. So, and all of the, the slowdown in free agency, I mean, that's yeah. related to the labor situation, obviously, but boy, there's a, an awful lot of material yeah. out there, Ken, so <laughs> get cracking. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about asking for more Ken Burns baseball from Ken Burns is that I imagine we'll have a lot fewer notes about it than we did Tom and Jerry. <laughs> yeah, probably, I would think so. I would think just a lot fewer notes, and we'll be like, yeah, it's mostly okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a complex game with a rich history, and the longer you wait to tell its story, the more episodes you have to do, and we live in a like 10 to 13 episode max kind of world, so <laughs> gotta get cracking. Yeah, I don't know if you need a 12th inning, because the zombie runner usually ends the game after 10 or 11. Kazing! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, but yes, I would uh, encourage him to do this. I think it would be nice if Ken Burns baseball could be continually updated, you know, eventually, maybe by someone other than Ken Burns, I guess, when that becomes necessary. But it is a great resource. I mean, there are certainly some things there like, you know, some of the the stereotypes about Ty Cobb, for instance, that I I think the original documentary plays into and some of the subsequent biographies have exposed just how much of that was really fabrication or exaggeration by an earlier biographer, Al Stump, who was uh, just really trying to make a buck and make the story as sensational as he could and kind of take advantage of Ty Cobb. And then that reputation was solidified by subsequent works, including Ken Birdson's Baseball, I think. So I don't know if you can go back and try to correct the record a little bit, but even if you just let what was done stand and just continually add to it, it is probably the best resource. I mean, obviously you have to have like a lot of time <laughs> it's like what almost a full day of ken burns's baseball and oh yeah i mean it, it's it basically is like if you count the 10th inning i think the running time is is like a day <laughs> essentially right. it's like it's close to 24 hours at this point and if you add in an 11th inning then it's definitely going to be a day or more so you have to be in the mood but i guess you know if everyone can get into eight hours of beatles documentaries then if you're interested enough in baseball in american history then maybe you can do three times that for baseball (laughs) so just to have that be an up-to-date resource would be a good thing for baseball and it would also really help out MLB Network which is just running Kevin Costner movies and Ken Burns baseball on a constant loop during the lockout so more programming I don't want anyone to hold me to this because I might be misremembering it in the fog of this protracted <laughs> lockout situation but I think I remember that like they hit they started running 
Ken Burns baseball like day one of the lockout. And I was like, you are using that material far too early. This is going to go on much longer. What are you doing? Why are you using that now? Yeah, we do need. Can I can I offer an unrelated thought that this is making me think of the circumstances around it are really bad. But it has been cool how much how many old games that I had like not seen or not seen in a long time are on MLB Mm. Network. And I would just offer the following programming note to MLB Network, which is that when when the lockout ends and you guys decide you can talk about the existence of living and active baseball players again, you could you could show me less Costner and more old games and rebalance that programming Mm -hmm. in a way that I think a lot of people would enjoy because it's pretty cool to like scroll through like MLB TV right now and be like, oh yeah, like they're showing me that game and look at that, like that's- Look at how fast it was. (laughs) Yeah, or like look at, you know, there's peak Pedro, cool. I get to engage Mm -hmm. with this for a couple of hours. So I'm not saying that the circumstances are good and look, you know, a a little, a little Costner is fine. Although you should just play 13. You should play 13 Days. That's not a baseball movie, but it has Kevin Costner in it and it remains underrated. But like uh, you could play more old games with the with the current stuff. And I think it would help to answer what Burns' doc did, which is like sort of, you know, weaving the tapestry and filling the holes in our historical understanding of the game. And I don't think that, and I'm sure that Ken Burns would agree, like I don't think that he should be the sole arbiter of that, right? There are a mm-hmm. lot of different perspectives on baseball. Like I would be really excited to see documentaries from other documentarians who come from different backgrounds and walks of life and have a different perspective on the game you know maybe the maybe the answer for ken is that like he does you know one more inning and then he kind of under the umbrella of his framework sort of lets a different person take over the next one and we can see how they understand the game like that would be really cool because at the very least someone with a different haircut I say that with affection, but like it's been the same for quite a while. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, you're right. And I think Fangrass really is uh, exploiting a market inefficiency here by adding photos at a time when photos are not available via MLB.com. It's like, hey, if you want to remember what these guys look like, now you can go to Fangrass.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like it's us and BP with all these happy faces look at there's freddie freeman you remember freddie freeman how he doesn't have a contract yet well he's right there on the home page you can Mm -hmm. see it yeah yeah oh my gosh look at this uh big boss mobile that (laughs) shinjo rode into spring training i don't even know what you call this vehicle it's like a combination motorcycle except that it has three wheels it's like motorcycle in front car in back (laughs) there's probably a name for this but that's what he showed up to on his first day in spring training he also uh surprised his players with a fireworks show at spring training and uh, the fighters are selling big boss gear at the team store (laughs) (laughs) they're in the big boss business Gosh, I can't imagine that this gets very good, you know, like miles per gallon. This doesn't seem fuel efficient at all. It's like you're, you're, what is this? It is like (laughs) a car. It's like a car and a motorcycle had a weird baby. (laughs) And then, um, and then we added leather seats. So, you know, wow, he's, I think we need some of this big boss merch though. I, I think we might need some of this. I want the I I want the big boss tote bag, and maybe the mug. 
I'd like both of those. Can we order yeah. these online here? I mean, probably, yeah. right? Just replace. Can't, oh, can't ship to the U.S. right now. No. Oh, oh no. Devastated. Can replace girl boss with big boss. Oh, make this God. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah we replace <laughs> it with something. <laughs> right. Maybe the 11th inning can just be about Shincho, or it can just be about Otani, too. That can yeah. just be a whole episode. I forgot to mention the GQ cover when I was listing off Otani's wow. uh, recent cover model ops, not just uh, Bill James' handbook and Ron Chandler's baseball forecaster and MLB <laughs> The Show 22, but also GQ. Yeah, I mean, like, you need to really run the gamut from least to most horny. And I think we put, like, the Bill James <laughs> handbook at one end of that spectrum and GQ at the other. I'm just yeah, saying, like, that's, that's, that's the run. I don't know whether the Ron Chandler baseball forecaster or the Bill James handbook is at the, the extreme end of that spectrum, uh, but somewhere in the same region. Those are probably. some words that I don't know that I needed to put in a sentence together, but I did it. I did it. <laughs> I am an owner and a proud owner of at least one of those books. So. <laughs> no shots, just say. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free while getting themselves access to some perks, including monthly Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, one of which we just posted this week. Soren O'Connell, Max Horn, Alan Spatrick, Doug Graham, and James Edmiston. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and all the other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We need your emails now more than ever amid the lockout. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find Effectively Wild on Reddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then.